Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, April 7th, and we are talking about Nanox and the spectrum of investing risk. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's non-nimble novice of navigating narrative notes, Brian Faroldi. Brian, how you doing? Dylan, pleasure to talk to you on a Wednesday and not just a Friday this week. I get you twice. Awesome. Well, yeah, I love this. I mean, come on. Who doesn't, who doesn't love to get to hang out with their buddy for two hours and, and just happen to have it get recorded and you know, get to share it with a bunch of people? We have, we have fun jobs, Brian. We really do, and I'm bringing. We're bringing back healthcare, uh, wild healthcare to Wildcard Wednesday. I'm going to do my best to make sure every Wednesday we talk about healthcare. So uh, that's what we're doing today. And and judging based on the emails that we get from listeners at industryfocus@fool.com, I I think you are wise to do that because we had Christine Harges hosting the healthcare show for a while. We had Shannon Jones hosting the healthcare show for a while. Uh, two folks with in-depth backgrounds in the healthcare industry. For a while, we felt like. We didn't have that, and we didn't want to put out a show without the expertise, but you have built that up, and so we are now able to regularly bring that to people. We get comments all the time saying, make it, make it the healthcare show again, and I think at least with Wildcard bringing healthcare in the mix, I think most weeks uh, of the month, we at least get to scratch that. Healthcare is just like technology to me. There's always, there's so much innovation happening in it. There's so many uh, new drugs, new technologies to come out, so it's an endlessly fascinating market. Speaking of, I mean, this is the, the company that we're going to talk about today uh, will not be new to fee- people that have been listening to the show for a while. Uh, Nanox Imaging, you brought this to our attention a while ago. And, and it is one of those businesses that sounds like space age technology when you really start getting into it. Dylan, we talked about this in August of 2020. Uh, at the time, we called it the riskiest company that we've ever talked about in the show. And we called that show, Is This the Tesla of Medical Imaging? We really couldn't have come up with a better name there because this has become a battleground stock. Uh, since the IPO, uh, Nanox has traded as low as $20. It's traded as high as $94. There is a passionate group of bulls behind the stock. There is a passionate group of bears that have attacked this stock. In fact, since it came, uh, since it came public, not one, but two famous short sellers have put this on their radar and produced scathing reports, uh, blasting this company. So we called it the riskiest company we ever talked about. Man, did we get that right? Yeah, I don't think you knew how prescient that was, calling it the Tesla of medical imaging. It it sounds an awful lot like Tesla. If you just remove the names, it would be easy to think that you were talking about Elon Musk's company. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And as a refresher, we didn't we weren't predicting this was going to become a battleground <laughs> stock or anything. We just said, hey, this is interesting. Uh, take a look, put it on your radar. As a quick refresher. Nanox is focusing on uh, medical imaging, uh, specifically the the X-ray market. Uh, so they have developed a new type of uh, technology that they believe will enable them to make X-rays an order of magnitude cheaper than it is today. That in and itself is is interesting and and worth talking about. The reason that we I wanted to talk about it on the show wasn't necessarily just the technology. The thing that interested me about Nanox was the business model innovation that I saw. And that is why we compared it to Tesla. 
I think one of the reasons that Tesla is underrated is because it is fundamentally changing the business model of the of the of the auto industry. And that reminds me something of along the lines that uh, Nanox is going in. The company is trying to is essentially, if it's successful, uh, is going to be giving away its scanners for free and earning revenue from them by charging for each individual scan. That takes the business model from a huge upfront cost into zero dollars upfront and a recurring revenue business model. And of course, they, they, they're going with the times here. They're calling this medical screening as a service, MSAS. That's interesting. <laughs> I can't keep track of all of the as a services anymore, Brian. I used to have a pretty decent short list in my head, but... Uh, you know, as we've seen the success of the as a service model, particularly in software, a lot of industries have caught on. It makes sense that someone is exploring this business model in the medical imaging space. And this is a disruptive company. And we're going to get into how it's, you know, it's a pre-revenue company, really. Like you're, you're buying the idea of a business in some ways. But we have seen so many times over the course of the last even, you know, 20 years, highly innovative, disruptive businesses with business models that work differently than the incumbents are often able to either provide users uh, a better cost structure, a better service, um, or something that is currently being missed by what is being offered out there in the marketplace. This was really pointed out to me by a thinker that I like a lot. His name is Tony Siba, and he points out that business model innovation can be every bit as disruptive as technological innovation. If you're looking for a phenomenal example of that, may I present Netflix. Netflix and Blockbuster sold identical products. A movie from Blockbuster was the exact same movie that you could get from Netflix. This is, of course, in the early days uh, of Netflix. The innovation that Netflix came up with was sending it to you as a subscription through the mail. It was the exact same product, but it was sold using a different business model. And that one obviously worked out spectacularly well, but that just really shows if you sell a similar product, but you sell it in a different way, that can be disruptive. 100%. And it's funny, Brian, that was the exact example I was going to use, but I was going to focus on a different element of it. And that's getting uh, charged monthly for something versus being charged for every single DVD that you're renting. And that, that was another element of the disruptive business model. Uh, we, we've seen it with Netflix, but I think Amazon as well is another great example with, with their prime product of saying, like, we know that you want stuff fast. We're going to charge you a certain amount. You're going to get two-day shipping, and you're going to be thrilled. And, and what did we see with that industry? It became table stakes. You have to do it in order to stay competitive. It was wildly disruptive when they did it. I think that's part of the pitch with a company like Nanox. Um, obviously, a lot of things have to materialize, though, for that to be something that customers and ultimately patients uh, wind up experiencing. Yeah, and an important thing about the business model innovation there is when you are a relative, when you are a new company, you can experiment, you can do things differently. And if you look at the companies that this that Nanox will be competing against, if it's uh, successful, even though it says it won't be competing against them, you know if. If you were to buy an x-ray machine, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, up front or, or, or even uh, more. That is how those companies' business models are built. If they were to change their business model to match, uh, to match Nanox, to go to a subscription, they would be forced to give up a ton of revenue in the near term to pay to, to, to go to a subscription model. That is a really 
really painful thing for for companies to do. So even though they might be able to to do so, it's painful for them to go backwards. This is actually a business strategy that's called counter positioning, and it can really insulate a company from competition for a long time. Yeah. And and one of the other elements is, you know, you think about businesses like a boat, Brian, like it's one of the easy ways to kind of uh, conceptualize how hard it is when you have so much legacy stuff, so much inertia behind things that you're already doing. That's like a massive cargo ship. And if you're coming onto the scene with, uh, you know, being pre-revenue, small revenue base, um, disruptive product, that's comparatively a small, maybe even personal ship, (laughs) you know, Uh, it's a lot easier to turn that to where you see the fish are, you know, if you're out there fishing. Um, And so with that, you know, if you're in a legacy business, you have a lot of stuff going on, it's just going to take you longer to get there. And you have all of these reasons not to. And, uh, and sometimes you can actually have st- other stakeholders that you have to think about. Uh, again, to relate this to kind of uh, Tesla, Tesla doesn't use dealers. It is its own dealer. It's selling you cars through the internet. Every other legacy automaker out there is goes through a dealership network. That is a stakeholder that Net- Netflix, uh, that, that Tesla has essentially uh, sidestepped. So it's going to be incredibly painful if if time proves out that consumers just want to buy on the internet, they don't want to buy through a local dealer. It's going to be really, really hard for, for GM, Toyota to say, oh, dealers, sorry, we're disrupting you. We're just going to sell directly to, uh, to consumers. So that's the kind of thing that uh, counter positioning can do for you. So I think with that, we've, we've established what they're offering here, Nanox, is disruptive and probably a pretty good value prop for the ultimate customers, which are really going to be healthcare providers for the most part. Um, that's what's going to be what gets it into uh, patient use and, and really what makes it something that is a product that either takes off or does not take off. Um, last time we talked about this company, Brian, it was not even at a stage where it had FDA approval for its product. And that was a big part of the reason why we labeled it one of the riskiest businesses we've ever talked about on the show. The company has a lot of hurdles to overcome in order to get to the point where it becomes a business that's generating revenue and is actually being used by patients. Um, But we're starting to see some signs that that thesis is materializing. Yeah, we got some good news on that front uh, uh, earlier uh, this week. Uh, so uh, Nanox, again, as you said, is not even FDA approved. So that is a major, major hurdle for any medical uh, company that has to be overcome before they can even begin to uh, to to uh, to sell their uh, products. Now, Nanox has said from the beginning that it's going to take a multi-stage approach to uh, to approval. Uh, so the first step that it was going to go through would be to get its uh, nano, nano, Nanox.arc uh, digital x-ray technology through as a single uh, source. That was kind of step one. And the good news is that is exactly what got cleared uh, earlier this week. So on April 2nd, Nanox said that it received 510K clearance from the FDA for its single source Nanox that uh, arc digital x-ray technology. That is a key part of the company's core technology. So getting the regulatory thumbs up on just that is a big plus. That's especially true if you've been following this company's history, where it's actually tried and failed twice to go through, uh, to get that through the uh, through the FDA. The FDA both times basically said, we need more information. So that was delayed significantly. But uh, Nanox did succeed with that uh, earlier this week. Yeah. And, and this is where the healthcare industry is kind of uh, unique, really. Because you know if, if you go out there and you're selling a consumer product or software or something like that, and you have certain sales goals. We'll say you you know you set guidance for a quarter or for a year. And you say we're going to sell a million, and you come up short. 
say you sell half of that, you still have $500,000 in sales. Um, And there's not really much of a hurdle to getting that out there, aside from whatever you need to do to physically make the product. But in the case of healthcare, in the case of a device maker like Nanox, um, there's a little bit of a binary outcome to what they're able to do uh, and, and really what they might prove as an investment because they need approval for everything. That's right. And that's just a challenge of investing in healthcare uh, altogether. There is this binary event that can make or break uh, an, an investing thesis, or in some cases, not even make it. It's just table stakes to really get invited to start to commercialize uh, your product. So the fact that Nanox is still behind that uh, product, again, makes this incredibly risky. Now that was that that FDA clearance was certainly big news. The stock did pop uh, when it came out. Uh, however, it's really important for investors to know that this isn't the only FDA clearance uh, that matters. Again, the company has consistently said that it's going to take a multi-stage approach approach uh, to FDA approval. So the company's next stage is to go and take their multi-source uh, technology and submit that for FDA uh, uh, clearance. So the single source was just cleared. That that gives the company essentially the green light to say, hey, uh, we're going to take our multi-source technology and submit uh, that. The reason why that's important for investors is the multi-source technology is the product that's going to be commercialized. So while the first clearance definitely is a step in the right direction, it's really the multi-source technology that investors should really be ta- paying attention to. Yeah, and that's that's the important nuance of of digging into this stuff. And it's uh, you know the FDA clearance process is important no matter where you're investing in the healthcare space. But uh, when you talk about drug companies in particular, you talk about what's in the pipeline, right, Ryan? And the idea that you have uh, for some of the bigger businesses, you know, drugs that are in various stages of approval are in in various clinical phases. Um, in the case of Nanox, the the entire bet is really on this technology and this this platform. There's not a lot else in there. So it needs to move along for this business to become ultimately something that is much bigger. Certainly. And one thing that is worth noting here, and we covered this in our initial uh, view of the show, one reason that uh, Nanox was so interesting is they are not necessarily thinking that the U.S. is going to be where this technology is most useful. They are really targeting the two-thirds of the world that currently does not have access to x-ray technology. So they're saying by using this business model that allows these these systems to be placed for free, that they can bring down the cost of x-ray so much that the two-thirds of the world that can't access this technology uh, will get access to it. That two-thirds of the world that can't access this isn't really in the US. It's in a lot of uh, the developing countries around the world. So therefore, you might be thinking, well, why does FDA approval even matter? Those countries, FDA approval is for the United States. The reason that it matters so much uh, is that the the FDA and 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 this and CE market in, in Europe are really two of the global standards for regulatory uh, clearance, and a lot of the other countries around the world base their individual uh, their local clearances on what the FDA and the CE and the CE mark says. So while the FDA, while the United States won't necessarily be a big market uh, for Nanox, although it certainly it certainly uh, could be, it does kind of give a, a, a seal of approval that will allow the company to take the technology to the rest of the world. So Brian, we, we talked about how we have an initial thumbs up from the FDA. And obviously, you know, stock responded very positively. The market was very happy about that. But let's take a step back here and look at 
what still needs to happen. You teed up that first part, right? But there are a lot of other elements that will continue to de-risk this investment. Um, And it goes way beyond simply getting FDA approval for the product. Yes. So regulatory approval is the biggest hurdle to clear uh, by far. And that is the hurdle that investors uh, should be focused on. But if you've studied uh, medical technology, again, we've said at the top of the sh- we've said earlier in the show, uh, that just gives you a seat at the table. That just gives you the opportunity to commercialize a product. Getting the opportunity to commercialize a product and commercializing a product are two completely different things and two different uh, uh, skill sets. Once you get a product approved and you have the thumbs up to do so, not only do you have all the normal uh, business headaches of manufacturing and distribution, uh, et cetera, but you also have a bunch of different uh, constituents that you have to convince. With medical technology, you have to convince payers around the world to cover your your technology. Uh, in the US, that's that that's Medicare, that's Medicaid, that's Blue Cross Blue Shield, that's United Healthcare. But each government uh each uh, government around the world uh, does things slightly differently, and you have to get each of them uh, to to sign off. That's another uh, big hurdle. You also have to get to convince payers to give your technology a a, a shot. Uh, if you are uh, an X-ray expert, are you going to necessarily say that this technology is as good as what you're you're currently using? Uh, I don't know, but you do have to educate payers that the technology exists and why they should send uh, their their payers there. You also have to do the same thing with with patients. You have to convince them that it's it's uh, it's safe uh, it's safe to use. So while getting FDA approval or regulatory approval is a is the thing the big hurdle to overcome, even after that fact, it doesn't necessarily guarantee commercial success. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, Brian, those other steps are very decentralized too, right? You're you're working with a single organization for the FDA, and obviously there are other organizations, other regulatory bodies that come to play. But we're we're going to focus primarily on the U.S. here. Um, But then once you get beyond that, you're working in much more fragmented spaces with payers, with providers, and especially with patients. You know, evangelizing and really socializing the idea that this is a good product that's helpful. It reduces cost. It leads to better outcomes. That's that's long and difficult work. It really is. And what, what's the thing that we always say with show? I mean, we've we've talked about we've talked about so many exciting healthcare companies, so many exciting technology companies. When you read through a presentation, when you read through a an annual report, it sounds awesome. <laughs> like every single time, it's like, wow, this just sounds so awesome. What's the thing we say? Prove it. Prove it. Great. <laughs> this sounds great. Prove it. Prove it that you can actually get out there and and create uh, and create demand for your product. The way that companies like this prove it to you, uh, prove it to me, is by showing enormous revenue growth, uh, especially in the beginning. That that more than anything else shows me that there is a product market fit because. There's, there's always nuances to, to commercializing a product that it's really hard for investors to see, uh, it, it, sometimes because they are not understood by management, sometimes because they're hidden uh, by management. But I sold a disruptive medical device technology for 10 years, and you would think that devices that are disruptive and really empower consumers would just sell themselves. You can never count in all the hidden forces that are at play behind the scenes that can make or break a technology. Yeah. I, I believe it as, as someone who has not sold anything but has heard you talk about it plenty. Um, I, I imagine it's it's a difficult thing to do because of all of those things we talked about earlier. All of those things you have to overcome, um, and you know beyond just the core industry and, and what we we're talking about with companies running into those things, all of the levels of of uh, payers of providers 
also have those same decision trees, right? Where they have legacy technology systems, they have staff that has been trained to use something. All of that upfront investment is there for stuff that they already have on the premises. That's exactly right. And the f- interesting thing, the really interesting thing about when you ever talk about uh, a technology like this is a lot of times people that are uh, in the industry because they know so much and they know so many of those hurdles to, to, to overcome, uh, they can provide really really compelling bear cases. Uh, I myself worked in diabetes uh, for years, and I could have convinced anybody that Livongo, Livongo Health, uh, was going to fail. Like, I just could have done it. If you looked at what Livongo did as an investment, that stock just about 10 bagged before it was, before it was acquired by, by, by Teladoc. Uh, so I've gotten a tremendous amount of really, really insightful, helpful feedback, uh, by people that are, that are in the industry. And I so, so appreciate that. I think it's still important to say, well, I'm going to let the numbers do the talking. Yes, there's reasons to be bullish on this stock. Yes, there's reasons to be bearish on this stock. Uh, but the thesis will really play out based on one thing, revenue. Yeah, and Brian, I mean, pessimism always sounds so smart. Uh, and and when you know something really well, you know all of the steps that go into making it happen, which can often make it even harder to decide to invest, right? You know just how difficult the challenge is that a company is trying to take on. Uh, you mentioned revenue growth. This is a pre-revenue company. Um, and so we don't have that shorthand. We don't have that heuristic um, to really understand, okay, they're, they're charting their path forward and they are also checking these boxes along the way that give me confidence. You're a shareholder in this business. So I'm curious, what made you decide, you know what, even though revenue isn't part of the story yet, I'm interested and I want to buy shares? Yeah, I think that most listeners know that I'm a typically a methodical investor. I have my checklist that I that I go through with my investments and I'm pretty demanding. I want to see high revenue growth, high margins, profits, a clean balance sheet, a founder-led management team, optionality, operating leverage, etc. Like all those things is what I look for in a business. Nanox, none. I mean, like <laughs> none of those things exist at all. So you're like, well, why am I even a uh, shareholder? Uh, I, when it comes to my portfolio composition, I think about my portfolio in three primary buckets. Uh, f- about 40% of my portfolio, I aim to put in high-quality, low-risk stocks. Uh, these are companies that are highly profitable, wide competitive advantages, just check like every box that I'm looking for. And this is where I want the bulk of my capital. So this would be companies like MasterCard, uh, Amazon, uh, Facebook, uh, etc., Another 40% I put in high quality stocks that are riskier, either from a valuation perspective or a size perspective, but still high quality. So these are companies like DocuSign, uh, Blackline that we've, uh, we've talked about before. So that is where the bulk of my, of my capital is. With that remaining 20%, I'm willing to swing for the fences uh, on on occasion, and I'm willing to risk a little bit here and there on companies that are very risky, but also offer the potential, if I'm right about them, to provide huge returns. In Nanox's case, I thought that the story was compelling enough to risk a tiny, tiny bit of my capital and find out if I'm right. And one of my favorite investors ever has this wonderful saying about companies like this. If Nanox is the next great growth stock, a little is all I need. If it's not, a little is all I want. I love a good turn of phrase. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm curious, Brian, with with that portfolio allocation, I think I'm similar. You could you could you know plus or minus the numbers about five percent, and I, I probably fit into a lot of those buckets as well. Um, 
you provided the percentages and the allocation for the buckets. I'm curious how you think about the individual position sizing within that. Yeah. So every every company, I when I'm buying a stock, I'm typically buying in fraction of a percent chunks. Uh, I typically invest uh, about half a percent of my portfolio at any given time. And I invest over, I build positions over multi-quarters or multi-years. And I want to see that uh, with my first purchase, I'm very willing to take to bake, take a, a lot of risk on because I don't know as much about the company. Uh, in this case, there's a lot of hurdles that we've talked about that this company has to overcome. But I'm willing to risk a small bit of my portfolio to get that to get that capital uh, in the company. Uh, after Nanox wins FDA clearance for its multi-source, again, its commercial system, uh, the company will be de-risked significantly uh, from where it is today. So I would be happy to add capital to that company after that happens. Yes, I will have to pay a much higher price and a much higher market cap to do so. But if I'm right about the long-term thesis here, I'll still make fantastic 10 plus year returns uh, on Nanox, even if I buy after that uh, that allocation happens. So this is a company that I would just add to very slowly as the story plays out. Yeah, we talk about it a lot, um, both with you know companies that have gone on sizable runs, um, and also you know within the thinking of adding to winners. That you when you see something and it is currently we'll say up 200 percent from where you first bought it, it's hard to do that. But if you change your mindset and you say, rather than paying more, I am trading certainty for upside, it's much easier to wrap your head around that. That's that's exactly correct. And if you look at the history of the market, uh, one thing that I just so firmly believe uh, in my investing soul is that winners keep on winning uh, and losers keep on losing. So while it can be very painful to to pay double, triple, or even quadruple the price uh, for a stock after it's uh, it's gotten FDA uh, approval or after it's clearly shown, shown signs that it's, uh, that it's been winning, sometimes that can just be the smart thing to do because as you just said, you're trading, uh, you're trading upside potential uh, for more, for a higher likely likelihood of success and a higher conviction conviction in a company. And if you look back at any of the biggest winners of all time uh, in the market, buying after they were up 100%, 200%, 300%, you still made a ton of money. That's right. And and Brian, you said before that you are typically methodical as an investor. And I think that that would be a great TMF name for you if you didn't already have one that was so fitting. Um, but But you put together this really amazing table. Um, I think you were doing this anyways, and it just happened to be relevant to the show. Um, But I want to walk through it because it basically looks at investment stages from the business first being formed to basically becoming a slow and steady dividend payer. And the way that you look at both risk, profits, upside, and ultimately whether you're pulling the trigger and investing or not. You know, I I don't want to like get too detailed here because it's a little hard. Maybe we'll tweet it out on uh, the industry focus Twitter account. But I I do want to kind of walk through what that spectrum looks like because I think it's helpful for listeners. Sure. Uh, I broke up the investment stage, uh, investment stages of a ridiculously successful business. Uh, that's a key point here. This is assuming ridiculously successful uh, into roughly 12, 12 stages. Uh, so stage one is the business is being uh, formed. The, the, the risk is maximum. I mean, there's no revenue, let alone profits. Uh, but on the flip side, the return potential is enormous. I mean, if you were a seed investor in any successful uh, business, all you need is one of 
of those really uh, to basically set you up financially uh, for the rest of your your life. However, the 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 odds of that company failing or blowing up are are very very high. Uh, but that's stage one. Uh, stage two is the product or service that the company is is being uh, offered. The company is being built to offer that is uh, is being developed. Uh, sometimes that is a uh, service and the development is zero. Other times with uh, medical uh, technology companies or or tech companies that can be years. It can take years to develop a product or a service. Stage three is the product is launched uh, to to the market. Uh, stage four is kind of figuring out, okay, we launched this product. Is there product market fit? Is there actually demand for our product uh, in the market? Uh, at that stage, you really you really prove that out by seeing enormous. Uh, enormous revenue uh, growth. Uh, from there, it's it's all about uh, revenue growth uh, kicking in. Uh, stage six is just reinvestment uh, into the business. So revenue is coming in and the company is plowing more and more resources to build out the commercialization team to invest in sales and marketing. Stage seven is margin expansion. Uh, that's when the company is reaching a sufficient scale to kind of drive out uh, margins uh, throughout the business. Stage eight is you reach profitability. Uh, stage nine is huge profit growth from operating leverage really kicking in. Stage 10 is market is, starts to become uh, mature and your growth starts to, uh, to slow. Uh, after that, the company typically starts to focus on dividends or buybacks. And if they're successful at that for a long, long time, they could even become a dividend aristocrat. So I just thought through each of those stages. What is the risk profile at each stage? What is the profits at each stage? And what is the potential to me as an investor at each stage? And then I just came up with some very simple guidelines for Am I interested in the company at this stage? And what how what percent of my portfolio would I be willing to invest? Yeah, I mean, this is basically caterpillar to butterfly for for a wildly successful business. And and what I like is you can basically put any company on the spectrum and then check in maybe a year or two later. And if everything's going the way it should be, you can probably move them to the next stage. If the thesis is holding, that's happening. If not, you know, you might see them kind of in the penalty box or something like that. But it's helpful. And maybe we can just ground um, some of this discussion in some names that fools are familiar with and just provide some examples. Sure. So in, in Nanox uh, stages here, it is very clearly in stage two. I mean, we are not even to product launch yet. This is when uh, the risk is incredibly high, but the max, but the return potential is also uh, very high. So Nanox is currently a $2 billion uh, market cap company. And just ask yourself, okay, if this, if the company does what it says it's hoping to do, uh, how big could this company be one day? I, I mean, I could foresee a $20 billion company. That would not be a ridiculous uh, assertion to make if the company can do what it says that it wants to do. So that could be a 10x plus plus return uh, from today. So you're asking, okay, is that return potential worth the risk that, uh, that I'm taking on? If you move forward, another company we've talked about is Dermtech uh, on the show before. They're commercializing a product that helps to diagnose skin cancer in a uh, less uh, invasive way. So that company is post 
product launch. Uh, however, it's still in the, is there some product market fit here? We've gotten some early signs from Durham Tech that yes, revenue growth is huge, but there are still some big time commercialization efforts that that company has to uh, to overcome. So while the return potential might not be as high uh, or could potentially not be as high as for Nanox, you are trading uh, known, uh, you're trading a few stages ahead of the game because the company is already on the market and already has some early signs of success. Uh, finally, if you go all the way to the other end, you can look at a company like Intuitive Surgical. That's a medical device company that's been on the market. It's been selling for years and it's reached profitability. In fact, it reached profitability about 16 years ago. The returns for investors have been absolutely spectacular. And because it's so dominant, so well known, and uh, so highly profitable, uh, I would personally be willing to put a big chunk of my portfolio into it. So that's just one way to think about the stages and a few companies that are there. I think this is a wonderful example for a variety of reasons. And like I said, we'll, we'll tweet this out on the at MF Industry Focus uh, Twitter handle, just so uh, folks can see it. I realize this doesn't always translate well uh, to audio when we're talking about visual stuff. But, but the reason I wanted to discuss it is within your categories, you basically have the risk, profits, return, potential, and, and crucially, do I invest? And what I think is great here for me to see as, as someone who learns a lot from you, Brian, is there are... Things that are no's, you know, as a broad category, where you are a shareholder. And and I think what can get lost sometimes in, in systems-based thinking is being blinded by the system and, and creating structure for yourself that prevent you from making decisions. And with all of this stuff, and, and you can find your own system for, for doing this, you know, folks that are listening, but understanding the inputs and then being like, yes, but... And, and knowing why you're making that decision in spite of things that normally would prevent you from saying yes. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of systems thinking and just writing things down for yourself. And broadly speaking, I'm a huge believer in creating rules for yourself and then following uh, the rules. If you are a beginning investor, that's exactly what you should uh, focus on. However, rules are, are they're, they're more like strong guidelines as opposed to exact uh, rules to follow. And I think it's okay to quote unquote, break your guidelines every now and then if you think the risk reward uh, is is compelling uh, enough. And as long as I'm doing that, and I as first off, as long as I know that I'm doing that, and two, I'm risking an appropriate amount of my portfolio on that, I'm okay with making a few high-risk, high-potential return uh, investments. Uh, to Plus, that makes things more fun. <laughs> you know, Brian, the risk-reward trade-off is is pretty asymmetrical with having you on the show, because <laughs> it is, it is low-risk and high-reward. I'm always happy to have you on. Great chatting with you again this week. You too, Dylan, and I'll see you on Friday. See you on Friday. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at MF Industry Focus. Like I said, we'll be throwing the chart up from today's show there. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, fool on. Fool on.